2: And let men say, we be men of good government, being governed as the sea is, by our noble and chaste mistress, the moon, under whose countenance they Thou
1: mm. <laughs> sayest well. And it holds well, too, for the fortune of us that are the moon's men doth ebb and flow like the sea, being governed as the sea is by the moon. As for proof, now... A purse of gold most resolutely snatched on Monday night and most dissolutely spent on Tuesday morning got with swearing, lay by, and spent with crying, bring in, now in as low an ebb as the foot of the ladder and by and by, in as high a flow as the ridge of the gallows. By the Lord thou says,
2: true lad, and is not my hostess of the tavern a most sweet wench, As the honey of Heibler, my old lad of the castle. Ooh.
3: Hello, and welcome to The Play's The Thing. You have joined us on this podcast for all things Shakespeare for Henry the IV, part one. This is the question and answer episode. So this is the end of five discussions over the five acts of Henry the IV, part one. And now we are going to do our very best to answer your questions about this play. My name is Tim McIntosh.
2: I'm Heidi White.
3: And I'm Brandon Blanc. We're here at the tail end. Um, I, I feel like I owe a debt of gratitude to both of you. I'm the host of the show, but I feel like you two were kind of our guides through this play. Because you two know this play a lot better than I know this play. So I just want to begin by saying thanks. Thanks to both of you.
2: Well, you're very welcome, more than welcome, but... As, as always, Tim, you're too modest. So
3: <laughs> mm, I don't know about this time. I don't know about this time. You guys really are. I think, I think Heidi, I mean, Brandon, you know, this play better than I do. I th- feel like Heidi, you are a real.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, it's of this my play. you love it. Play. Yeah. I love, I just love the Henriette. I love this tetralogy. I've Spent it's it. I mean, who has a chance to have be obsessed with a series of Shakespeare plays and then talk about it professionally? Yeah, not be a professional scholar. So, th- right. I mean, I it's my turn to thank you for the opportunity, it's really fun.
3: Um, before we get to the questions from listeners, for either of you, is there something in this reading/slash viewing of the play? that you saw or heard that you had not seen or heard in previous viewings, readings, listenings?
1: Uh, well, I've had, it's been a real help, actually. Like, honestly, Heidi's probably, probably more into the history plays of Shakespeare than anybody else I know. And so um, it's been a huge help for her to kind of point out where, where the the personal is overlapping with the, the kind of grand uh, kingly questions that are being asked, asked mm-hmm. right? So where where Hal's journey overlaps with a, a, the question about kingship and those kind of things and the way it plays out in the court versus like the bar, and all the, all those things were really helpful to see how Shakespeare was was using um, one to highlight the other. Uh, so yeah. that, for, that for me was was really eye-opening this time around. Yeah. Heidi, how about for you?
2: Well, I think for me, it always goes back to Falstaff because I just, I, I think I have gained a greater appreciation for him not as a character but just kind of opened myself up to seeing him more sympathetically than Mm. I'm naturally inclined to do through the two of you and that's the way I want to read I always want Mm. to read really empathetically and really lovingly towards characters and there's something I've always had a block with Falstaff and I feel like the two of you have helped me overcome that a bit so I, I appreciate that.
3: There will be a question during our (laughs) Q&A about that very subject, but I'm going to hold off on that one. The first question that I have, actually, Heidi, I'm going to throw it to you. It is about kind of the performance of the tetralogy. Um, So I actually am going to have two parts, and I'm going to ask you the first part first, Heidi. Would you mind reminding us what we mean by this is a part of a tetralogy. Henry the Fourth, part one, is part of a tetralogy. I know we talked about this in the opening episode, but let's just do a brief refresher.
2: Yeah, so this is a standalone play. It is its own play. And yet it also belongs as part of a series of plays, a series of four, which is why it's called a Tetralogy. Uh, and the plays are Richard II, which is the first play in the Tetralogy. This play, Richard IV, part one, then Richard IV, part two, very creatively. And then finally ending with Henry V. Uh, and so those that series of plays is called a Tetralogy trilogy and yet each of them stands alone so it's not a series in the same way that say like harry potter is a series and if you grab book six you're going to be a bit lost because you needed to have the context each of the plays is its own artifact and yet it fits into a longer series that tells one overarching story Uh, and you know who would think of that but shakespeare It's very rare. Hardly ever has that happened. And really Shakespeare's the master of it. Uh, And he wrote another tetralogy, uh, which actually comes first, comes before this one chronologically. Oh, excuse me. It comes before Um, this in the writing. In the writing of it, but later in the chronology. Yeah. Uh, So this this series is (laughs) often called the first tetralogy um, or the second tetralogy, depending on how you want to talk about it. Um, are you talking about
3: the right, the authorship? or Are you talking about the actual history? It's a good question, history? and right. it is a
2: bit confusing. So, yeah. in history, uh, the other tetralogy comes first, and that tetralogy is Henry the Sixth, part parts one and two, uh, and three, and then Richard the Third, and those come; those are uh, the War of the Roses. Um, and those come actually after this tetralogy in history, which is very confusing, but they were written first by Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so there's two tetralogies. Shakespeare wrote 10 history plays and four, uh, and eight of them are these two tetralogies. And then there's, you know, um, King John and, um, Henry the eighth. Um, and then some people consider a couple of his Roman plays like Julius Caesar to be history plays.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Heidi, do you know how early this set was started being referred to as the Henriad and the others as the War of the Roses? Was that pretty early on or is that?
2: Well, it's still unclear. I've heard it both ways, Um, but uh, I know I don't know when in critical history it was began to be called the Henriad. I just know that's kind of what it's called now. Um, some people say first and second Henriad or first and second tetralogy. Some people call it the War of the Roses versus the Henriad. It's kind of confusing and it, but to be honest, the other plays Henry the Sixth, parts one, two, and three, and Richard the third are not quite as strong in the writing. They were written earlier by Shakespeare and they're not, they're not quite the masterpieces that this particular tetralogy uh, with Richard the Second and um and Henry the Fourth part one and two and Henry the fifth. That one's much stronger artistically. Um, and so unless you're a diehard Shakespeare fan, it's it's probably not, or want to impress people at dinner parties. Um <laughs> It's probably not that necessary. They're not very popular plays. By far, the most popular out of those is Richard the Third because you have the "Now is the winter of my discontent" speech, which is one of Shakespeare's famous lines in the opening of the play. Um, and I have actually seen that one performed, and it was really good. That one's performed more often than yeah. than the others, and the others are just not quite as strong artistically. Although they're they're also they're Shakespeare, so they're yeah. also wonderful.
3: I performed the Richard the Third opening monologue one time. And after the performance, it was performed with a bunch of other scenes. This father came up with his young girl in tow. And he said, with a smile on his face, hey, I want to congratulate you. You made my daughter cry during Aww. the monologue. And I was like, oh. I mean, it really was a compliment. She was I don't know that she cried. Actually, I think she was just scared because Richard the Third, the opening monologue. It gets a little scary if you pay attention to the words, so... I took that as a compliment. Here's the question, Heidi, that I would like to ask you. This is kind of coming on the heels of your explanation of the tetralogy. So this is from this is from Nathan Mulker from Morriston, Missouri. We speak of Richard II through Henry V as a tetralogy. Do we know to what extent that was true at the time of writing? Were they performed together, or were they standalone plays related? Do they need to be read together to be understood? So to what extent were the, was the tetralogy performed together at the time of the writing? Heidi, do you have an answer for us on that one?
2: Yeah. So the each tetralogy was written pretty much in order. Uh, the tetralogy we are on right now, the Henriette Tetralogy, was written right around 1599, which was – as we've talked about a very significant time in English history because of this succession issue. Um, we're approaching the end of Queen Elizabeth's reign. Everybody knows it. Everyone's anxious about it. Who's coming next? And so the theme of succession is really important and um, uh, you know primary to, um, to the history plays at this time. Uh, the earlier Henry, or excuse me, chronologically later Henry add, was written early. The War of the Roses Tetralogy was written earlier than that. Um, And they were written in a row, just one, two, three, four, just bang, 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 just like that. But they were performed separately over time, which is why each of them is its own artifact. And because different people, different audiences would be coming to the plays at different times. And so it made sense uh, to make each play um, its own thing and not have to see the plays before it because they're not written as novels, right? It's not written to be read. Right. They're written to be performed. So they're each its own story. Um, but this would have been very, very familiar history to the general English population. Um, everybody knew this story, especially Henry V. Everybody knew about Henry V. He was this great and mighty king, you know, the mirror of all Christian kings as mm-hmm. he's called in Henry V. And so um, everybody, everybody would have been interested on in a popular sense in a play Play, um, or a series of plays about this great English king.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you mentioned before. I mean, y'all brought it before that the next one is probably the weakest of the four, and it's called Part Two. I mean, we mm-hmm. talked about that in the last episode. Um, it probably needs this one the most, like of any of them. It needs the one preceding it the most,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, but it also needed That's to exist helpful. to bridge that gap, right? So, yeah, mm-hmm. um, yeah. I would say that would be tougher to read that one, or even see that one without seeing this one.
2: Yeah, I've never seen it performed in my whole life other than integrated into the hollow crown. Yeah, me too,
1: same. Our
3: next question is for you, Brandon. Uh, It actually, it comes from Tim A. McIntosh from Tungsten, Texas. If Falstaff came to Heidi White's house in real life (laughs) for a block party, would she actually begrudgingly like him?
2: Okay, so who was the author of this question?
3: Uh, Where, who is, where's
2: the source material for this question i think
3: tima? the source material is it, is it
1: is... tima is her name tima, <laughs> tima. <laughs> the source material is
3: your own commentary heidi you I... said you didn't you're not that crazy about. okay so
2: i'm really curious to hear the answers of this question from mm-hmm. the two of you and mm-hmm. i am particularly interested to hear if the author of the question as posted mm-hmm. on facebook mm-hmm. has any thoughts on this
3: he might i've been in communication <laughs> with him i'm in close communication with him uh-huh. but i want to give brandon an opportunity to weigh in on this well
1: i, I have not gotten to heidi's actually how actual house in colorado but she appears Which to be a hostess a great sadness. I know it is a great sadness. We will be rectified in the future, mm-hmm. but I feel like you're the hostess with the most, kind of person. And so you would, you would be a gracious host to whoever showed up to your block party. Indeed, I do think you would keep a close eye on how much he was being served. Um, yes. For sure. Yes. Uh, um,
2: and if I had any single friends at the party, i would want to keep my eye on them. Right, <laughs> yes. right, right, right. Yeah, right,
1: right. yeah that, that would probably be the biggest key points. But I think if, if he stayed, if he didn't, if he was not overserved, served, you would probably enjoy his company enough. He'd find him <laughs> funny enough to, 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 uh, to hang out with for an evening well, at a block party. Probably
2: also depends on how much I'd been served and whether mm-hmm. or not he had Prince Hal in tow. Anybody's maybe, welcome maybe, to come to my house if he's given Prince Howell a ride over.
1: That's a good point. Maybe better at a block party than at a dinner party
2: would be, would be the way to. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's definitely not invited yeah. to one of my dinner parties.
1: Yeah.
3: Okay, here's how I see it plan out, right? I think this is what I imagine. I imagine Heidi answers the door. You know, she doesn't know who it is. Hold on, Scott. Let me answer the door. She goes <laughs> to the door. She flings it open, excited to see who the next guest is. It's Falstaff. Heidi's response is, oh, how are you? Falstaff, who has listened to the podcast, he's actually a huge fan of the plays The Thing. I'm not sure if you guys have seen some of his social media commentary. He says, oh, hey, I'm fine. Um, I'm here to eat your buffet and to drink your wine. Any problem with that? Um. No. Come on in. So that's the kind of opening meeting. Okay. Falstaff goes out. He carouses. He actually is. He does his Falstaff thing. He's completely charming to everybody. You have safely kind of like shielded your single friends from him. So there, I while there's something
2: out of the wine cellar that. Is, that isn't a giant waste of sack.
3: Yes, right, right. You get your like your Beringer White Zinfandel <laughs> two thousand twenty one right, out of just the cellar. Case wine, <laughs> exactly. And you, what do you know? He ends up charming all of your guests, and then I think what happens. This is how I think the party kind of concludes. Heidi has her second glass of wine. She's feeling full of vim and vigor, and she's like, you know what? I actually need to say something to him. Okay, I just need to go. Scott, I just, Scott, I just need to go say something to him. Okay. And you go out. He's sitting around the fire, and you sit down, and you kind of do a little bit of a kind of a confrontation, and it <laughs> like goes a little bit of a
2: come to Jesus.
3: Yeah, and it's something like, I, I want to talk to you about the. I just want to talk to you about the way that you've been treating Hal, mm. because. Like, I think Hal has a really promising future, and I just don't want him. I just think some of your uh, actions they concern me. Dead weight. Yeah, I I just don't want you to be dead weight for Hal. And I think you know he doesn't take it. He doesn't appear to take it seriously. But then I actually think in his heart of hearts, I think in the I think on the inside he knows what you're saying is true.
2: Do you think he knows what you're saying is true?
3: And I think it makes an impact.
2: Okay. I'm asking for a friend.
3: (laughs) That's how I think it happens with your carefrontation with false ash.
2: Right. I, I like this. I think that as a general rule, when I have guests over, I don't confront them about their character flaws, but I think that. This might be
3: a special exception
2: it might especially if he already knows how i feel about him and has yeah just de- just deliberately flaunted that in order to make a point which is what yeah. i feel like happened
1: he probably hung her out or hung around a lot longer than everybody else too so like it's you're not doing it real publicly at this point he's just been mm. he hasn't gone, yeah. home he have gone have home.
2: A, i probably tell him i i'm gonna <laughs> get him an uber and then yes. i sit down yes and while we're waiting for the uber yes like i have yes. four minutes that's perfect yep
1: That's perfect. I feel like one of us gave this question a lot more thought than the other person. I
2: know. And it might be the person (laughs) who asked the question on (laughs) Facebook. It might be.
3: The great news is we actually have an answer from one of our listeners. Jennifer Watts Degani from Willow, Wisconsin says, "Um, would Falstaff, would she actually begrudgingly like Falstaff? Jennifer Watts Degani says, Heidi might, if he complimented her food and if it was his first stop of the evening – if he comes after hitting a few pubs, then no, she
1: probably would not begrudgingly like him.
3: I think it's probably fair. I think that's she's a wise
2: fair. woman. I, know. I think we, she is too. Mm-hmm.
1: The favorite. My favorite thing I learned just now is that Heidi has just in case wine, which is not surprising. But I need yeah. confirmation that she has yeah. just in case wine. Right.
2: I'm not going to serve. I'm not saying. I'm going to serve it to you, Brandon. I'll yeah. get you uh, middle shelf at Good. least. <laughs>
1: that's all that. that's that probably so all sweet. my. Pa- that's probably all my palate's worth. It's middle <laughs> shelf, to be honest.
3: Next question, also from Nathan Molker of Morston, Missouri. The play within a play motif There's so many people from
2: Morston, Missouri.
3: There are. It's actually dense with Shakespeare (laughs) fans. Um, The play within the play motif seems central to this play with the end scene. How would you stage that scene and depict Hal's emotional state there? So I'm going to ask you that question first. And I'm going to ask you the second part first, Brandon- how would you stage the scene? But I'm more interested for this moment. How would you depict how's emotional state at the play within the play scene?
2: You're Brandon on mute. Is,
3: Brandon is so it's what sounds like contemplation is actually yes.
1: a muted button. Um, Technical difficulties. I, uh, I really like the way this is actually staged in the hollow crown. It's probably cause he seems to go from just kind of this revelrous silliness at the beginning. And he's really just in the whole moment of, well, we're going to have this big joke with each other. It'll be fun. We'll entertain everybody, you know, kind of carousing in, but as the, as the text kind of reveals itself, what each of them say, he, he, becomes more more serious and and somber Mm. with his response and so for me that was a great um it's a it's a great delivery of that line i'm I'm gonna i'm gonna flub it but the i have i will or i will i I do i will yes thank you i do i will and he lands that line so well because it's come down from this kind of this kind of raucous peak that they were at to start and um and he's he's kind of coming. That's why I think at least the way it's played in that version, that's this moment where he's making a decision in his own mind, even if it's not evident to everyone else. Again, and then then that's followed up that next, I mean, almost immediately is the scene with him and his father where he's, he's very earnest about wanting to show himself worthy. Um, And so for me, I love the way that's played and that's probably how I would stage it where it starts off. It kind of tricks you a little bit, You're like, oh, this is the funny, this is the fun bar scene. And then it's um, poignant by the time you get to that line. So
3: you like that, Heidi? You like how the, the hollow crown staged it?
2: That's great. It's just that, that whole production, we keep referring to it. And because it's the best, it's, it's the best depiction, stage depiction of, um, of these plays I've ever seen. And I get, I go see everything I can if it's a mm. history play. So, um, and I've seen just some really amazing, some remarkable, um, stage performances. And I, I realize that film and cinematography can't compete with stage in terms of like visual, um, splendors, right. Mm. Um, but there is something it's that The acting is just, it's remarkable. They did such an amazing job. And this scene, this play within the play scene, this tavern scene is key to everything going forward. It has to be very carefully staged. And they did a great job in it. I really like um, what Brandon said. If I were putting it on a stage, I would put him elevated in some way in the center of the stage giving this speech. And I would kind of maybe gradually enlighten you know like spotlight more and more because as Brandon said the the action of the play or the excuse me the action of that scene goes from social to private goes very public to private throughout the course of that um, conversation that he has with Falstaff and it starts out like with revelry as Brandon said he said that very well Um, and then by the time you get to the end of that that part of the scene when he when he says banish plump jack um mm. don't don't banish plump jack for all the world right and 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 henry's and Hal says i do i will um it's a foreshadowing it's it's a warning um and uh i would i would want that to be i would want my audience to hear that really loud and clear and see that as a private moment between the two of them um which in my mind on stage i mean in a film that's easy right you just you just make it a close yeah, up yeah. right um but on the stage it seems like you could do that with lighting Right. Yeah. And like fade out the the audio, excuse me, mm-hmm. fade out the crowd around them and like hone in the lighting onto this elevated scene of these two, who, these two people who are, you know, essentially staging a play within a play, yeah. you know, it's a production, I, their whole conversation is a production. Go ahead, yeah. Brandon.
1: I, I like that lighting idea. And you said at first, the first thing you said was having how elevated mm-hmm. it is like putting the chair up on top of the table or something. Right. Because then if you do those, those, both those things, like you just said, you take the lighting down off the rest of the crowd in the in the scene, and it's just the two of them as Falstaff's delivering his lines, and then as Hal delivers his. You you can even take it down off of Falstaff a little bit, right, with it just left on Hal, and he's elevated, right, and, and there's that there's that supplicating that's kind of sad and pathetic from from Falstaff mm. um, that you can really highlight with the lighting. The lighting is really good.
2: What about you, Tim? You're an actual actor and director. How would you do that? I'm
3: sitting here being impressed by your staging ideas, both of your staging ideas. And to me, I consider this like a massive victory of influence because I love to talk about, you know, like how you would stage various things because I, you know, I believe um, that staging is communicating. You are Mm -hmm. communicating so much. I'm teaching a Shakespeare class next month for Classical U. And I'm trying to help teachers get just kind of like a, you know, a rough rudimentary grasp of how staging works, how blocking works. And blocking is communicating. It's a communicating relationship between characters, you know? And so if you have two characters standing within five feet of each other or three feet of each other, that's really interesting because – Three feet is striking distance and three feet is also kissing distance, you know? Mm-hmm. And so hmm. I, yeah, I just love, I'm not really answering your question and I don't think I am because I don't know that I can improve on what you guys said, but I just love that we're talking about blocking and staging as a way of kind of like imagining what this scene is
1: is communicating to us. I do
3: you agree. Think, oh,
2: go ahead, Brandon.
1: I had a question on, do you think some of that importance of staging has been lost by stripping away some of the, like the stage in history had specific things, right? Things were the heavens. They were not, you know, they were the they were the underworld. Uh, like the that was structure under,
2: of the, the theater yeah. itself, the when architecture.
1: We back to like kind of like a black box as being our go-to for the last 50 years. Right. Do you think some of that understanding has been lost about how important that is?
3: I do. In fact, like this is actually a little bit of a, I've written a couple of essays on this. I mean, so by comparison, if you went to see a Greek play at the height of classical Athens, um, the stage communicates so much about what is taken for granted in classical Athenian culture. So an example would be, the young male aristocrats who are the future rulers of the city, they're all sitting on reverse reserved seats on the front stage. And so there's this kind of instantly communicated is this is a play. I'm speaking specifically about the tragedies. This is a play meant to pose dilemmas for the future ruling class because they might have to deal with these, you know, Shakespeare's time. There was a backdrop behind the stage that was basically kind of a cosmos painting. It was a picture of an orderly heavens that was kind of intermingled with an orderly vision of like township or city life or rural life. And so communicated right there behind the stage is a kind of orderly cosmos. And so when you see Hamlet say, um, what is man, but a, quintessence of dust, you know, this this golden fire, this, um, it seems nothing but kind of dust to me. Well, the stage is actually communicating the opposite, you know? And so I do think that we lose something when we stage something in just a black box theater that has no kind of givens no fixtures to it. Now, someone could counterpose to me, but Tim, nobody actually stages in just like an all-dark box. They dress the set. And I would say, yeah, but they're they're not including, there are no givens in any play. The play itself dictates what is given within the universe of the play, but there's no given that the audience says, yep, that part of the staging, like namely the backdrop in Shakespeare's day is, is always there. It's always there no matter what. And I think that we kind of like, that says something about our culture, you know, there's no givens on a stage. What does that mean? Like there are no givens in our culture. Sure. Feels like it to me. Feels like, you know, kind of like, man, everything's up for grabs right now. So Okay, end of end of. By the way, one other thing. The tra- there's a trap door in Elizabethan stages. Do you know where the trap door led down to? They called it the cellarage or hell. Mm-hmm. So on Shakespeare's stage, there was the performance area, presumably kind of like that's earth. Then there's hell below and the cosmos, the heavens above. So you have like a, this kind of like three-tiered universe That's constant throughout every performance of Shakespeare's time. Mm. I think that's pretty interesting. We have that Globe, right? Yeah, right.
2: So when he makes comments like in Richard II about the king being a a world, right, Mm -hmm. Um, and let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the death of kings, have some have died in war, some, and then he goes on to talk about um, the king as a world, a little cosmos. Yeah, That was very meaningful within yeah. the architecture of the space. Absolutely right. To your right.
1: point. Absolutely right. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. things like Juliet being above in a window, right? When that conversation mm, yes, happens. Yes, exactly. She's placed she's above him at that point. Okay.
3: Exactly. Yeah. She's kind of mingling in with the cosmos, which in a lot of ways kind of suits her character, doesn't it? Right, right. You know? Well, it, this... it,
1: it tips you off to that about her character, right? If you're, yeah. if you're a theater goer that's used to that theater, it's a tip off, right?
3: Right. Yeah. She's kind of a vision of heavenly wisdom despite her youth. And she's kind of like almost an kind of an angelic figure. Uh, Next question is about Falstaff. So this one also is from Jennifer Watts Degani from Willow, Wisconsin. (laughs) Was Falstaff based on a real life person? There's a pretty good answer for this. And the answer is yes. It seems like Shakespeare... Uh, modeled Falstaff after a guy named John Oldcastle. And he actually, I think that we might have very, very early copies of this play in which Falstaff was named John Oldcastle, but he changed it, the story being that one of the descendants of John Oldcastle complained, a guy named Lord Cobham, C-O-B-H-A-M, he complained and then Shakespeare went back and he changed the name. So we even have evidence within the play. So Falstaff, I think this is act one, scene two. Um, Falstaff and Henry are in the tavern. Falstaff, is, and is my hostess of the tavern not a most sweet wench? Lynch. And Henry replies, as the honey of Hybla, my old lad of the castle. John of the John Oldcastle, my old lad of the castle. So he refers to Falstaff as my old lad of the castle, but the name didn't stick because Cobham complained. And Heidi, you and I have talked about Shakespeare was very adept at, um, despite making really profound points with his play, he also knew how to kind of. Keep his neck out of the noose. And one good way to do that is just don't make the aristocrats mad. Don't make them mad. If somebody has a complaint that you've insulted their ancestor, you might want to change it. I think mean, that's you know, and Shakespeare wasn't afraid to do that. So next question. Uh let's see who this is coming from. Debbie Howley Wallace from Winter Palace, Wyoming. <laughs> And this is, this is going to come to you first, Heidi. If Henry IV's claim to the throne is tainted, why is Hal's any better? She, she says, within the plays, I mean, not in actual history. How does he get to be the mirror of all Christian kings if his claim to the throne is illegitimate? Or is the both and, how is both the best guy for the job, eventually and the son of usurper, just Shakespeare's answer to the problem of the divine right of kings. I just want to say that's a gold star question. Yeah.
2: Well, Debbie, that is a gold star. That's just
3: like a great question.
2: Gold star question. And I think it, I mean, it shows a great uh, knowledge and familiarity with the late medieval mind, uh, which assumed the divine right of kings. It assumed that a king on the throne anointed with balm by an archbishop uh, and had, which is a sacramental anointing. So to the medievals and the late medievals, the Renaissance mind where we're at with, um, you know, Henry and Richard were right smack in the high medieval times in the 1300s. And then Shakespeare, of course, is, you know, late medieval slash Renaissance Um, to them. The anointed king means you are now a different kind of human being than just a regular person. So for Richard, as we talked about in the Richard II podcast, uh, Tim, you and I, when we did that, we talked a lot about that, a lot about that. So for our listeners who might not be familiar, you can go back and listen uh, and, and get a feel for like the dissonance to the medieval worlds that a king would be usurped even if he was a bad king and the person coming to the king coming to the throne was better fit for the job which that's the whole conflict of richard ii which is the play that comes before this bolingbroke would probably be a better king richard's a terrible king but richard has the divine right of kings what are we supposed to do with this Mm -hmm. right um figure it out audience Right, um and and but here we have the son of a usurper who is very tormented throughout his entire, I don't know career, I guess, quote unquote. can you call kingship a career yeah. throughout his entire vocation as king and as print uh, as the Prince of Wales? He's internally tormented by the fact that his father was a usurper. So that's what creates a lot of internal conflict for him he doesn't know if he should be there or not because there is this latent honor in him that we see come out through the course of this play right um and that's what we've been talking about three of us over the last Mm -hmm. few weeks we see him first as kind of a wastrel a prodigal and then we see him stepping into his vocation as the future king and yet as we'll see in the later plays, particularly Henry V, but definitely in Part Two of of Henry the, of Henry IV, he is so tormented by the fact that his father's a usurper. He doesn't know whether he should be there or not. Yeah, and so you're asking Debbie the same question that Shakespeare is giving to us. I don't know that Shakespeare answers the question definitively except through the person of him, of Hal becoming Henry V, the mirror of all Christian kings. And so in a sense, the man and the king, the united kind of nature of the man and the king is the answer to that question. But there is always a question mark in Hal's mind, even after he is the king. Um, on the night before the Battle of Agincourt, he gives a very significant speech um, that is a soliloquy, meaning he's alone on stage. And anytime Shakespeare gives us a soliloquy, that's a signal that we're seeing the true self of the character because there's nobody there to play, so to speak. Right. So uh, when you see a soliloquy, you can trust that what the character is saying, is there a true inner life? And he gives a soliloquy on the night before the Battle of Agincourt that indicates he is still internally tortured by the fact that his father was an usurper. And he is asking for God's grace to forgive him for his father's sin. So there is still this conflict within Hal, both personally and spiritually if I can say it professionally, that is exactly what your question is. And so I think what Shakespeare does is kind of give us this this problem, this problem of the divine right of kings, this problem of succession, and say, make of it what you will, audience, because he gives us a lot on both sides to support one position or the other.
3: I want to hand it to Shakespeare again. This ability that he has to really press hard on the questions that are kind of um, alive in his day without directly answering them. He's charged over and over with equivocating, you know? And people who are critical that Shakespeare, William Shakespeare was just kind of, yeah, he had a great, poetic mind but he wasn't you know he was afraid to take like hard stances i want to say that's how you get killed that's how you get killed he did not live in a kind of um state that permitted a, enough of a free discourse that he would keep himself from getting killed and he had ability to both articulate the questions i think to suggest answers without suggesting them so strongly that he died the next day. Right. I think it's a real art. I, I think agree it's a real well art. and
2: I agree that there's a pragmatism to it, right? He doesn't want to die. For sure. For yeah. sure. But I also think to pick a side on a on any kind of like tricky political issue is also to write bad art. To write propaganda, right? Like, so Shakespeare is an artist. He takes so much. He's, I mean, guess we don't know this. He seems to, we don't know anything about his in our life, hardly at all, because as you said, he has all of his, all of his plays are point counterpoint, right? Yeah. Here's a tricky issue, point counterpoint, point counterpoint. And, and, and that is why he's so great. So mm-hmm. for for the modern mind, which doesn't like that, we like ideology, right? We want somebody to tell us what to think instead of to wrestle through it on our own. I'm like, go back to Shakespeare, read some Shakespeare. Yeah, because yeah. if you want to know a tricky political issue, a tricky personal issue, tricky religious issue, uh, and and you want to wrestle through that and 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 learn how to think through it, read Shakespeare. Yeah. I, I'll just
1: step take a step back to the Greek theater that Tim mentioned earlier. Um, oftentimes those tragedies were presenting situations where there was not a good choice. Yes. Like, right. And so, but there had to be a choice made. Yes. Um, and I think I've mentioned, I don't know if I mentioned on here, but I think I've mentioned you Tim before there's, there's an organization called theater of war that uses those plays to help. Um, well, first was to help soldiers mm-hmm. wrestle with their own, uh, difficult decisions that they had to make in the field and they've used it now in prisons and things. And so I think that's the same thing. There's, there's not a good answer here, right? Because um, at this point, uh, Henry the fourth has also had the anointing, right? He's had the the same anointing by the priest that makes him this now separate thing, like Heidi talked about as a King, but he got there in a way that he's tainted. Um, So the divine right of kings says that it should be how now, but that's complicated. And correct me if I'm wrong, but, uh, Richard II didn't leave an actual heir. So once he's defeated and, and is killed, someone has to take that throne and there were people with claims as we see, as we see that mentioned in this play. Um, but Bolingbroke was in the position to take it at that point, um, with support. Right. And so, this is, I think what Shakespeare is giving is like, this is always, always, always going to be a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, you know, there's been a pretty good run in England for a while now, but like, that's, that's been the rarity. And it's probably because the actual power doesn't sit with the crown as much as it used to. Right. Yeah, so, right. Uh, so no one's, no one is making as big a deal about trying to take it. Yeah. Um, but history says it's shifted families multiple times, right. Uh, or at least. Lines of the family multiple times um, because this always comes up. And so we yeah. have to figure out how do we deal with it when it happens? Yeah. I and mean, how do we move forward?
3: Yeah. Brandon, I was in New York for one of the theater of war performances. Nice. My friend Abby knows the guy who started the whole, you know, the whole theater of war, yeah, which yeah. basically you take an ancient, ancient piece of literature usually a play, you read it as reader's theater and then you invite a uh, talkback and the talkback, they deliberately asked a lot of veterans to come and be part of this talkback. They read a Greek play. I wish you could remember what it was, but it's all about this kind of, um, what yeah. looks like the great warrior in this play is suffering something like what we would call post-traumatic stress disorder. Of course, they didn't call it anything like that. It looked like kind of like, berserker language. Um, But it was so powerful because this playwright, again, I can't remember who it is, really seemed to capture the kind of like trauma that comes after war. And all of these veterans were like, man, this ancient playwright got it. Like he really named like how how I felt after Afghanistan or whatever it was. And man, it was like you know one of these moments as someone who writes plays and someone who write who loves classical literature. I was in like the fifth level of heaven for a while. It was just oh, it was a ma- It was incredible. I mean, it was it was there was a lot of feels in the room. It was not a comfortable place for a lot of people, but it also felt like it was this really kind of healing exercise that this ancient voice could like name what was felt by contemporary people. And I think it had the kind of effect of saying, Hey, you're not alone. People struggle with this as long as there's been war and there's been this war, there's been war as long as there's been people.
1: Yeah. Yeah. His name is Brian Dorries. And I heard about, I heard about, I heard him interviewed on a different podcast and um, it's fascinating, but uh Yeah. And to your point, like they didn't call anything PTSD, but there's always been a name for it. Right. We we called it shell shock after World War I. There's always been a name for what soldiers experience when they come home, even going all the way back to the ancient Greeks. So, yeah.
2: Well, and I think to bring it back to the, the history plays that there's this that that's also true for these complex political problems, particularly the problem of succession when you have a king who comes next and who gets to decide and, and, and what, what do you do if you have a bad king? Um, And what, what if that guy would be better at the job like these are can a good man be a good king um shakespeare and the and the other tetralogy in the war of the roses tetralogy shakespeare gives us henry the who's a really good man a devout man a pious man and a bad king a very weak king mm-hmm. and is very easily manipulated by the people around him and that's what creates the drama of the place where right. and, and in him, and in Richard II, you have a man who's just a straight-up bad king and a very, very selfish person, um, and has like robbed the nobles and created enemies and gone to war and just like ransacked the nation, right? Um, and but he's not necessarily a terrible man. He he would have been pretty good if he could have just been like a barista somewhere, like thinking <laughs> right. about his feelings and writing, yeah. you know, like um, and there's. Uh, so what do you do with that? Bolingbroke, who becomes Richard IV, or excuse me, Henry the Fourth, is a very, very able administrator. He has always, always complete control over himself, those around him, and every situation he's in. And we hardly ever get to see the man behind the mask, mm. if ever. And that makes him a pretty able king, not necessarily a great king, not everybody's favorite guy, but certainly better than Richard II, at at least at the tasks of the job. And yet right. he's a usurper. So like Shakespeare kind of forces us, he does that in so many plays, not yeah. just the not just the, the history plays. We also have it in the tragedies, God and Macbeth, right? What do we do with the problem of succession and the issue of kingship, the man and the king? And yeah. And I love how in this play we get to see the education of a king, right? Mm-hmm. The one who actually is like the best king in the whole Shakespearean canon, Prince Howe becoming Henry V. This is where we get to see him um, becoming a, a man of honor and virtue and, and coming from his kind of checkered past with this torment on his soul um, to really owning himself as the king. And to your point, Brandon, Henry IV Although a usurper, he does become, he is crowned. So he gets the balm, he gets the scepter and the crown and all of that. And so then at that point, according to the medieval minds, he is now the king. And then his son ought to be then the next king. Hmm.
1: And I think, I think you just made a great case for why you should really take a look at the whole tetralogy, even though most of the plays stand on their own, because you see how grow into the, the, the mean between Richard and, and Henry the fourth, right. He, he, he ultimately embodies their two strengths in, in the man and in the unified man and King, um, which is why he gets the title that Shakespeare gives him. So, yeah, but it, you really get a good, a good picture of that. If you Read the whole thing. So, or see the whole thing.
3: Our next question also comes from Debbie Howley Wallace. Of Winter Palace, Wyoming, and before I ask it, Brandon, I've got a qualifying question: Do you like the Iron Man movies? Do you like the Marvel
1: universe? Um, for the most part, some are stronger okay. than others. Yeah, yeah.
3: Okay, okay. That's just because this question's coming to you. So, and I really okay. like the form of the question. Uh, Debbie asks. Um this might be or she says this might be better as a close rant, but I'd love to hear it either way. I think it is possible to see Henry the Fourth part one as the origin story of the superhero king, Henry V. So compare and contrast Prince Hal with Iron Man. Consider the arc of both characters over their respective plays slash movies if Hal becomes the quote mirror of all Christian kings end quote does Tony Stark become the mirror of all Marvel superheroes?
0: Uh,
1: man, now I'm going to sound like a really big nerd because I'm going to say that would depend on which position you take on Captain America Civil War and whether he or or Captain oh. America are in the right. Or if it, I totally or, agree
2: with you. That's not too nerdy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> or if I, the truth is totally somewhere right. between. Um, okay. I, I, Brandon, yeah, I've got yeah. to interrupt you. I've got to
3: interrupt yeah. you. I don't know what happens in Captain America Civil War. So I'm going to ask the question, what happens in Captain America Civil War? But I want to say, let's cover this in the next 120 seconds for those people yes. who, like me, have not seen that movie. Okay, so fast yeah. forward, listeners, if you don't want spoilers. Go ahead, Brian. What
1: you need to know is that Tony did something in the previous movie as Iron Man that he thought was going to be protecting people and then endangered people. And then the superheroes had to fix it. But in the fixing of it, a lot of innocent people probably lost their lives. Okay. Um, And so now there's this thing where superheroes basically have to register and they're not allowed to go save people without permission from some multi-governmental body across multiple countries. Um, Okay, end
3: of, now you can rejoin us. Yeah, end of explanation, okay. So
1: one of the two people, one side says, yes, we need to sign up for this and put ourselves under this authority. And the other side says, we won't save anybody if we've got to wait for 20 countries to tell us it's okay to go save them. Mm. And that plays itself out. So like half the superheroes are now basically international criminals. And so where you come down on government regulation and uh, plays in all this kind of (laughs) thing. So, but I I do think that her points about, I, I do think this tetralogy is ultimately about Henry V, which is amazing since you don't even see him in the first movie. I mean, first, Mm. first, the first play. Right. And so, um, and it's amazing because all, but maybe the third play can stand alone, but I do think um, it, it, it drives to how does, how does he get it right? You know, how, what is he paying attention to with his father and Richard II and what they got wrong? Um, And, and the fact that he, we get to see, which is kind of rare for this time period, probably um, this much internal wrestling about becoming the king. Um, you get a lot of wrestling with Hamlet internally, but that's that's about revenge, right? Yeah, it's not about being the good king. Yeah, um, this is this is a pretty modern way to depict the the king character wrestling with what it means to be a good king, and and I think this these two plays do serve that up to to buy the, so so that it feels like a good payoff when you get to henry the fifth that he's found the mean between mm. those who came before him and he is whatever taint his father caused the crown by usurping he's purified by by the, the choices he makes and, and and the piety he shows um uh, mm. so i think that that's a pretty good a pretty good uh, whether it's uh whether iron man's the right one to go with i don't know but uh the the premise of the, the the idea behind the question I think is a good one. Yeah.
3: Heidi do you want to add anything on that?
2: Well, I mean I just want to back up Brandon that it depends on who you're if you're if Iron Man or Captain America, which little plug for my future book, I have two chapters dedicated to the two because I think that Captain America is the ultimate duty driven modern hero mm. and um and Iron, Iron Man, Man is the is... ultimate desire driven hero. Nice. And they have different, like they have different hangups and um they have different conflicts. Right. For for Captain America to become a great hero, he has to connect with his desire, right? Which is why he has to lose his girl and Mm. spend his whole life longing for her, right? That's his conflict because he's always searching for this lost desire. Um, And with with Iron Man, he has to actually step up and do something good, right? That's his big conflict. Um, He's so selfish and so he has to learn to channel um his heroics into a duty-driven life and that's his conflict it's really hard for him to do that so i think that but they are the ultimate heroes within the marvel universe and so to bring them up in um in uh in connection with Shakespeare is actually, I mean, I I applaud the question because I think you're seeing something that's really there, which is this um, this internally divided character who has this great cap- a, a capacity for greatness of soul, and if they were to harness that um, and govern themselves, then then they could they have the potential to bring healing to the whole society in which they they function.
3: Heidi, can you do you have a working title for your book?
2: It's the divided soul on duty and desire and literature and life.
3: That's a theme that you that has come up repeatedly in oh, yeah. our I'm close reads discussions. I'm obsessed with it. Yeah. And I I don't I mean that sounds like you're kind of denigrating yourself in some way. I, I think it's been such a helpful kind of question to ask of literary characters during our Close Reads podcast and just in my own private reading. So I'm eager for the book to be finished and for it to begin to make it splash mm. among readers.
2: Well, I, I hope, I hope, I hope so. It's been a, it's a, a fruitful, um, like a very fruitful contemplation for me in my own divided soul, right? Mm. Like yeah. that, like the conflict between what I want to do and what I, what I ought to do is so severe, I think in, in for all of us. And I mm. particularly feel it. And so looking for that in, in literature it has certainly been a professional endeavor because I write about it a lot and talk about it a lot, but it, it, it is more of an existential question for me. Like it's mm. a very, very personal and existential contemplation for me. What does it mean to be, what if what I wanted, like, think about this though. What if, What if what you wanted to do was what you ought to do all the time? Mm. Like you'd be happy.
3: Yeah, right. You'd be happy. Right. right.
2: And that, that, it is the question of happiness. And that, like, so that, that's why it's been so fruitful to me. That's why I think about it all the time and write about it all the time is because I want to be healed. And I see the conflict played out in literature and high culture and pop culture all the time. And I'm like, what can I learn from that? Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think there's some questions of dichotomy that are so helpful in thinking about. Literature and, and pop culture in our life, and then there's probably lots of them, right? Lots of questions of dichotomy, but there are a few categories that are really big ones that that help bring it to that transcendental level. And I think that duty and desire one is is definitely in that sure. um, in that range. And so I'm excited about that book. Yeah. Also, I'm just going to throw out there maybe Tom Holland Spider Man is the golden mean between those two characters, the, the, oh. next, the next generation. I'm just going to throw oh. it out there.
2: Well, my daughter would like to hear that because she thinks Tom Holland is so dreamy.
1: So. <laughs> maybe he's maybe he's the Hal who's, who's wrestling with the, the right. duty and desire right. of the predecessors. So, right.
3: um, We have one more question before we do that. Just a couple of plugs, Brandon. I'm going to ask you anything that you want to plug on behalf of Circe. So, background: the plays the thing is hosted by the Circe Institute. Brandon um, works for the Searcy Institute. It's kind of your, it's your home for all things Christian classical education. Um, Brandon, anything happening at Circe that we
1: that our listeners should be aware of? Uh, we have a couple of updates coming out uh, about with some of with some of our curriculum to be looking for in the next few weeks. Um, we also um, have. I'm going to just tease this a little bit. Um, be on the lookout for what Heidi's hosting for us next year. It may or may not be tied to this beautiful podcast. So that if you get our emails, you'll see that in the next few weeks. So great.
3: Our next, the plays, the thing episodes, I'm going to record an episode with my friend, Josiah, Josiah and I, he doesn't know this yet, but he's going to find out on the air. We are on opposite sides of Station Eleven, the series produced by HBO Max. I loved the book. He loves the series, the the HBO series. I can't stand the video series. It, <laughs> oh, my gosh. By the end, I just was pulling my hair out. But I want to reveal this to um, Josiah on the air. So we're going to record that during the next 10 days. Then I'm going to do something that we've never done on The plays, the Thing, As of yet, which is I'm just gonna like do an overview of who Shakespeare was and what Shakespeare believed. It's just gonna be a one man show for one, if not two episodes. So those will be coming out after my interview with Josiah. The interview with Josiah, the conversation with Josiah. I think we do so much kind of literary heavy lifting on the show that every once in a while I like to do stuff that's just about as you know just kind of poppy and related to Shakespeare. So in our back catalog, my brother, my sister, my mom, and I did a long conversation about classical comic books, um, Shakespeare editions that I think are just some of the greatest things ever done. And our family used to love to read those things. So we just kind of like had a trip down memory lane about those comic books. So every once in a while, I like to mix those things in. I'm not sure what is the next full-length Shakespeare play that we're going to tackle on this show? I have a few ideas, but I'm going to keep those to myself for a while. But okay. you'll be hearing about those coming up. Okay. So, um, last question, also from Debbie Howley Wallace. If you haven't heard, Debbie Howley Wallace is from Winter Palace, Wyoming. She asks, "Do you guys like to talk about how you guys like to talk about how Hal becomes Prince of Wales, who becomes Henry V?" That's a cha- that change is at the very heart of the tetralogy. Here's her question But can a true wastrel become a true king? That would require a profound internal change, a rightly ordering of priorities and affections. But I think Hal's soliloquy in Act One, Scene Two, lines 195 through 217, show that he is indeed putting on an antic disposition. That's a line nice, from Hamlet. Nice yeah. Hamlet Debbie, reference there. Debbie knows what's going on, by the way, in case we haven't figured that out already. And that he has already the disposition of a shrewd and successful king. The external forces that that force Hal to become Prince of Wales are not so much changing him as forcing him to reveal his true self. What do you think? I'm gonna come to you first, Heidi. Can a true waster become a true king or do you agree with Debbie that maybe what's going on is he already has the disposition of a shrewd and successful King. And it's just external forces that are kind of like forcing him to reveal who he already truly is.
2: She's asking again, another core interpretive question of the play that it's possible to have more than one opinion or or excuse me. It's, I guess it's not really possible to have more than one opinion. It's possible for people to have multiple opinions on this question is what I'm saying. Um, I, I mean, we do know exactly from what she referenced that Hal intends to clean up his act um, and become a good king. Um, However, I would also argue that, that if it's possible for a true wastrel to become a true king, I don't know. I don't think Hal is a true wastrel. However, I do not think he is yet a true king at that point either. There is mm. more to his education. There is some repentance. There is some growth and some learning. Um, so the same thing works both ways. Mm. Like if he were to wake up the next day and be on the throne, would he be worthy of it? No, because he's still drinking in pubs with Ballstaff mm. night after night after night. And so there clearly is, even if he intends to live as a, a as a great king someday. He clearly isn't doing it now. And so therefore I would say the same question, the same, the same kind of dividing line cuts both ways and that he's not yet ready and, um, and that there's still growth, repentance, knowledge to be gained skill. Um, he has to be on a journey and it's not mm. enough to just say, I'll do that someday. I'm not actually a wastrel. If you're living like a wastrel, you are. Yeah right? It doesn't mean you don't have potential to become something greater, but in that moment, if you're just out drinking and carousing with prostitutes and Falstaff and getting drunk and waking up in the morning, clearly there is a disorder in your soul. Mm. And, And so I think that for Hal, he- he truly is a prodigal, but he is a prodigal with a great capacity for greatness that he is going to be able to meet. He is going to meet it in the future. And that spoiler actually, I think adds more to the play to know that, um, to not be in suspense about that, but to know that this this young man is on a journey to becoming a great man and mm. a great king.
3: The lectionary reading at church last Sunday was the passage of the prodigal son and Um, It was, it was so wonderful. Our priest, like his voice was cracking the whole time. He's, you know, the prodigal son is just, it, it's just, it's like, if you become really familiar with it, it's easy to forget just how profound and moving it is. So that's fresh on my mind. And I think it's really easy to compare how with the prodigal son and i think in a lot of ways your view of what happens to the prodigal son after the reunion with the father what happens to the prodigal son after that is kind of your answer to what, to this question in a way for me i think the prodigal son is reunited with his father there's a great celebration and he goes on to become a great man you know worthy of his father's house but in that moment, is he worthy of it? He's worthy of being celebrated, but his his um, character kind of developed to a point that he's worthy of kind of like inheriting his father's manner. Uh, probably not, probably not. And I hear you saying something kind of similar. Am I right, Heidi? Like- Yeah. Hal's not ready at the end of- yeah. Henry the Fourth, part one, he's not ready to take on the throne, no, but he's moving he in the wasn't. right direction. Yes. Yeah. And it's
2: not enough to say, I'm going to be great someday Right, is what I'm saying. That is if how you live does matter.
1: Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in, in the case of the prodigal, he's come to the point of humbling himself, right? Yeah. Um, in the case of how there's probably some of that, but there's also the, he's come to the point of risking himself, right? Yeah. Uh, physically. I, I think to Heidi's point, I do think that yes, he states it, but he's um, at the very least he's still struggling with what do I do about this fact that I'm inheriting a tainted line, and he does, and that's maybe maybe he's acting out in some sense. Uh, we would call that now, right? He, um, but um, I think you could decide to play it lots of different ways. That's that's the kind of the beauty of the play is you could you could really play up the fact that he's just kind of pulling the wool over everybody's eyes, and he, this is all this is all a, an act for him that, that he knows what he knows that, mm. that when the moment comes, he's going to be ready. Right. Yeah. Or you could really uh, bury that idea and, and play it as someone who's a more of a real wastrel that, that comes along. Um, I think that one's tougher with this play to do it that way. Um, I think can a wastrel become a true King? Uh, I think the stories where that works is if there's some kind of real, real conversion that's 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 a you have this kind of coming to jesus moment um whatever it might be and that's not the story that we're given in this play um or with how um so i don't know that it would work as well to see to, to play him as like a, a really truly kind of corrupted person so mm-hmm. much as he's just kind of he, he seems a little bit just a little more lost in the beginning of this one than than someone who's really given himself over to that kind of like so that.
3: you you would say, Brandon, like the the prodigal son, the story in the gospels, he wasn't really, the fact that he repented is evidence that he was not completely a wastrel. He was um, just, I mean, he was lost. Yeah, but not Yeah,
1: but I would say he was probably living his life more like a true wastrel. Like he took the took his fortune. He went and he blew it, right? And mm-hmm. he, and he uh, cut himself off from his family completely. And he... um but he then is humbled. He has it come to. He's. I'm eating. The pigs are eating better than me. Yeah. Like he realizes something has gone horribly wrong. Yeah. Um. And the way he was living his life was the wrong way to live it. Um. And has to humble himself, a lot. Um, yeah. He thinks he or he thinks it does. His his father responds in amazing love. But whereas I don't know that. Um. Especially with the speech we get that that Hal has kind of completely, really completely abandoned. Yeah. He hasn't gone off away from the, he hasn't left the kingdom. He hasn't left the palace. Uh, he's just living it up as the, as the prince. You know what I mean? Yeah.
3: Yeah. So. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, You guys, we've reached the end of the episode. I want to thank you both again for being my guests on the plays, the thing
2: oh, thank this is you, Tim.
3: edifying, very edifying. Stay tuned, everybody, for a fun episode about Station Eleven, a traveling troupe of Shakespearean actors in a post-apocalyptic world. Stay tuned for the latest from the Circe Institute. There is a newsletter with weekly updates that you can get highly recommended, excellent essays included in that. And of course, as always, stay tuned for Heidi's forthcoming book, Duty and Desire in Literature. We want to thank you all for joining us. Please tune in to our next episodes. And we wish you, as always, very happy reading.